0: Uh oh, that's the foghorn. Must be time for episode four of the weekly Cavis Ships podcast our effort to cut through the murk, the mist, and the spray. I'm Chris Cavis.
1: And I'm Chris Cervello.
0: All right. Coming up, an exclusive interview with Congresswoman Elaine Luria, who in only a few years has quickly emerged as one of the key sea power advocates in Congress. She's got a lot to say. Stay tuned. But first, a quick look at naval news around the world. Three of the largest ships in the Russian Navy's northern fleet left Severomorsk June 29th for a series of exercises ranging from the Barents Sea down to the Baltic Sea. Among the ships were the missile cruiser Marshal Ustinov, destroyer Vice Admiral Kulikov, and amphibious ship Pyotr Morganov. The Russian ships could cross paths, with NATO warships taking part in the anti-submarine exercise Dynamic Mongoose, which also began June 29th off Norway. Canada, Denmark, the Netherlands, Norway, the United Kingdom, and the U.S. are taking part. Dynamic Mongoose maneuvers
1: run through July 9th. The U.S.-Ukraine-sponsored Seabreeze exercises continued in the Black Sea, where another spoofing incident took place, this time involving the U.S. destroyer Ross. On June 29th, a false ais Automatic Identification System indicator showed the ship maneuvering close to the coast of Crimea, now claimed by Russia. The Ross, however, remained in port at Odessa in Ukraine and was never near the position indicated on worldwide AIS systems. The incident follows a similar fake AIS indication a week earlier involving the British destroyer Defender. Meanwhile, ships of a NATO Maritime Action Group entered the Black Sea on July 1st to take part in Sea Breeze, while the Defender and Dutch frigate Everston left the Inland Sea on July 2nd.
0: And aircraft carriers, the Japan-based USS Ronald Reagan entered the U.S. Fifth Fleet Area of Operations. June 25th and began flight operations from the Arabian Sea in support of drawdown operations in Afghanistan, relieving the carrier Dwight D. Eisenhower. On the West Coast, carrier theater Roosevelt is preparing to leave her home port of San Diego in mid-July to shift to Bremerton, Washington for a year-long overhaul. Roosevelt completed her second deployment last May. On the other side of the Pacific, South Korea on June 28th commissioned its second Docto-class amphibious assault ship, the 14,500-ton Morado. features a full-length flight deck for helicopters and MV-22 Osprey tilt rotor aircraft. The South Korean Navy said the ship could make its first operational cruise in October.
1: In Washington, Congress has begun the markup process for the four bills that fund and provide policy for the Pentagon for fiscal year 2022. House appropriators on June 29th provided an additional $1.7 billion for a second destroyer and prevented the Navy from spending money to decommission the littoral combat ships Fort Worth, Detroit, and Little Rock, although it left in place plans to decommission the LCS independence in July. The House Appropriations Committee Defense Subcommittee also provided nearly a $1 billion for 12 F-A-18 Boeing Super Hornet strike fighters, the Navy did not request. The subcommittee mark proceeds to the full House Appropriations Committee. Markups are still to come from Senate Appropriators and both Congressional Armed Services Committees.
0: We're happy to have as our guest today, Elaine Luria, the second term congresswoman from Virginia's second district in the Tidewater region, which includes Virginia Beach, parts of Norfolk and Hampton. She's a 20 year Navy veteran who retired with the rank of commander, a nuclear trained officer. She spent virtually her entire career afloat on ships, one of the first women sailors to do so. She sits on the House Armed Services Committee, where she's on the Sea Power Projection Forces and Readiness Subcommittees, and she's a member of the Committee on Veterans Affairs and the Homeland Security Committee. She was also just appointed to the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th events at the Capitol. Welcome to the podcast, Congresswoman Luria.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: We appreciate you being here. So since being sworn in in January 2019, you have quickly established a reputation for knowledgeable, direct questioning during hearings on military affairs, not just on sea power issues, but on a wide variety of defense matters. But your lines of questioning to the Navy certainly have garnered attention. You've now had a number of chances to question and evaluate the Navy's leadership. What have you heard from them, and what are your chief concerns? Well,
2: Chris, you know, over the course of the last three NDAA cycles, you know, we have the opportunity to speak to uh, the secretary or acting secretary, the chief of naval operations, and then obviously the sec and the chairman Um, and focusing, you know, mainly on the naval issues is what's been most concerning to me is when, you know, the Navy comes to Congress with their budget it's really hard for them to come before us and justify, like, why they need what they're asking for. Um, and, you know, the more I dug into it and unraveled it, you know, there really isn't a clear strategy that the Navy's operating off of. And, you know, I've dug into all of the force structure assessments, so you know, gone over to one of the commands here, read through the classified documents that were used to develop these numbers that come out, In the 30-year shipbuilding plan, if there is one, I would say last year and then then this year, there essentially is not a long-range 30-year shipbuilding plan. And that plan keeps changing in years one to five. So it's not really a long-range plan if it changes every year. And so, you know, a lot of my conversations with the Navy have really been trying to understand you know, what's your strategy you know how are you going to employ these ships how are you coming to Congress and explaining it to people especially you know people who are not like me people who you know don't really understand where we deploy or the missions of our different ships you know as to why this investment is so important and why we need to grow the Navy and why we need these capabilities um, and so it's just been an interesting uh, series of, of hearings um, to, to try to get to the bottom of that I really look back at the strategy we had in the 1980s when John Lehman was secretary under President Reagan, the 1984 maritime strategy, I mean, it it clearly laid out, um, you know, these are the ships we need in the North Atlantic, the Mediterranean, the Western Pacific. We put that together. It equals 15 carrier strike groups, a total of 600 ships. Everyone understood that. Everyone got behind that. And, you know, as a nation, we made that investment and we got pretty darn close, like 597 ships before the end of the Cold War. And, you know, I think that we need something similar today to to guide the Navy. and, And the process seems backwards like they are saying, essentially, you know, this is the most we think we can get. So here's our top line. And then out of that, this is the best we can give you, as opposed to coming to Congress and saying, you know, this is really what we actually need in the worst case scenario in a conflict, say China were to invade Taiwan. um, And coincidentally, during hearings this year, both the incoming and outgoing uh, PACOM commanders, admirals Davidson and Aquilino, as well as uh, the commandant of the Marine Corps and the CNO have, have all substantiated this, like in the next six years, there's a high possibility that this could happen. So we need that fleet today. And I think that you know, a lot of what is in this year's budget is a divest to invest. So divest of current capabilities, get rid of cruisers, decommission more ships than we're going to build. But we need to be thinking about not Battle Force 2045, which is a document that came out late in the last administration, but, you know, Battle Force 2025. Like, what do we need today to fight and to, you know, um, be ready um, with the current world threats that we have?
0: Admiral Davidson, uh, who just retired as a commander of um, Indo Pacific Command. Was quite eloquent in his final year, especially about the threat from China and his fears that conflict of some sort could break out within six years, five or six years. Um, I know a lot of the Pentagon leadership uh, has tried to walk away from that. But what what is your sense of that? Do you think do you do you think should conflict come? Is it sooner rather than later, or is it years off? Is it you know twenty forty seven?
2: I think we can't gut the force today, um, and especially, you know, get rid of the platforms that we have in order to plan for platforms that we may be able to develop the technology for later and, and kind of taking a step back, look at the last generation of shipbuilding. Um, we decommissioned the frigates, uh, we brought the LCS online, but it still hasn't deployed with all of its mission capabilities, although it is a platform that is deploying and performing some missions, but it's supposed to be able to do mine warfare, anti-submarine warfare, and have these modular um, capabilities. Um, the DDG-1000, the DDG-X program, we were supposed to build 32 of those ships. We've only built three. Their main weapon system has been abandoned due to technology challenges. Uh, we didn't build a replacement for the cruiser. Um, the Ford was built and you know, now having significant number of new technologies four major systems, the radar, the arresting gear, the catapults um, and the weapons elevators still working through those technology issues. And so why should we have a high level of confidence that if we get rid of the fleet we have today, um, that these weapons will be available and online when we need them. So I think we need to make the investments in our current fleet, the modernization of the cruisers. I mean, there's there's a choice to be made. You know, it does cost money to upgrade the cruisers, the weapon systems, the HME upgrades, so the mechanical systems. But that's a relatively small cost compared to building an entirely new ship. Which, by the way, our industrial base can't even build enough ships. Quickly enough to replace those. So, you know, when the Navy came to us with their budget this year, they only had one destroyer in there. If there's any ship that we can build, you know, on time, on budget, and with a lot of reliability, it's Arleigh Burke class destroyer. But the Navy came in basically saying, you know, we've had to make all these tough choices. So we're going to leave that destroyer out, but it is our number one unfunded priority. So, to get back to your question, is, you know, I think we need to be ready today, um, because, you know, the the actions that China's taking, the speed at which it's building its Navy, um, we need to have the presence in the Western Pacific. We need to be in their backyard every day. And we can't do that without ships.
0: Do You think that destroyer was a little bit of gamesmanship there? They, you know, they they have to decide what they're going to put in their budget. It's um, politically sensitive, polit- politically significant. Chances are pretty high. Congress, Congress is going to say we're going to buy that destroyer.
2: It, you know, it feels like it. It feels like there is a lot of gamesmanship on that front, and you know, then that brings into question credibility of like the rest of their requests and their, their requests and their prioritization. I mean, they increased the R and D budget by almost 13, percent um, yet the shipbuilding budget. You know, they are decommissioning more ships than they're building. So, you know, immediately uh, there was an appetite to add back the destroyer. We're in the process now where Defense Appropriations has marked up their bill. It's been added back in the appropriations process. When we go through Armed Services, we'll be marking that up at the beginning of September. You know, I know that we're going to want to put that back. There's a question um, for a couple amphib ships. Senator Wicker is holding up a, a nomination for that. And then there's the question about decommissioning the cruisers um, and that investment, which on the scale of the budget is relatively small, but would maintain additional platforms, which you know each have two full VLS launchers, 122 cells, the ability to deploy as the air defense commander. And, you know, we're not going to bring those flight three DDGs online as the air defense commander fast enough to replace the cruisers if they're talking about decommissioning.
0: You know, a lot of those cruisers, including the Anzio, which which is a ship you served on.
2: Yeah, it was the XO on Anzio. We had a, you know, they're not in great shape. but We had a 13-foot crack in the hangar bay. We couldn't put right. a helo in the hangar. Um, yet we still deployed. We did our mission. We did a UNITAS deployment, and we won the battle leave for our strike group. So, I mean, it's not like these ships are not performing valuable missions.
0: And uh, that ship has actually been out of service for a few years now, mm-hmm. um, has been stripped, has no, does not have a full crew, cannot get underway. And that has been inducted. I'm not sure what that really means, but inducted into the Navy's cruiser modernization program, which doesn't seem to be churning out a lot of cruisers, half their ships in that are they want to get rid of.
2: Yeah, so I recently went and visited the Vicksburg and Gettysburg, which are two of the cruisers that are undergoing that modernization. And I'll say the Anzio has actually had a phase of that done. Sure. Uh, when I served on the Anzio a few years back, we still hadn't had the H M um, N E, so the, the mechanical upgrades, still had waste heat boilers that the ship was built with, hadn't shipped to the all-electrical systems. Um, and so there's some really big investments that have already been made in some of these hulls, and they just need the next phase for the combat systems and um, you know other network upgrade uh, things. So we've already made a big investment. It's a platform that we can use and deploy. So I'm advocating, you know, that we make that investment and continue to make them ready uh, for quite a few more years. Uh, if you look, NAVSEA actually put out guidelines a few years ago that said the cruiser lifespan could be extended to 52 years. Um, and right now, the average age of the cruisers is 32 years. So it's a ship we have, and it's a ship we can use. Right. And I'm going to continue to advocate for us to to make that investment.
0: Having worked with the Navy now from your position on the Hill, mm-hmm. um, which is Pretty interesting from terms of changing your point of view. Do you think the Navy is willing to work with Congress? Or is there maybe more of an element of fear from Congress, fear of oversight, fear of meddlesome, fear of just changing things? What do you think?
2: I have a good relationship, um, I think, with the leadership in the Navy, um, and I get a lot of, you know, positive feedback. You know, thank you for asking probing questions um, from Navy leadership. So, you know, I think it's a symbiotic relationship, and I think we need to cultivate that. I mean, I think we are, are part of our responsibility and oversight of the Navy and what we put in the defense authorization bill is to ask those tough questions, and you know, the Navy to come back and, uh, you know, answer those questions and provide a plan that I think is best suited for our defense in accordance with the national defense strategy. So um, I think it's a little bit of both, but I think it's designed to be that way. I mean, it's civilian oversight of the military. Do
0: you have a sense that they're being straight with themselves? No. They can, uh...
2: <laughs> you know, what I would say um, is, you know, I think there's there's like a say do gap. You know, they'll come in and they'll say China is our number one threat. We need to do everything that we can possible um, to deal with this potential and, you know, has been framed by Admirals Davidson, Aquilino, Gilday, um, that, you know, there is a possibility that China could invade Taiwan in the next six years. So that's our number one priority yet. I don't feel like the budget that they submitted made that priority based off the urgency and the timeline that they're talking about. Um, so the idea of divesting of platforms we have today for future technology, um, you know, doesn't speak to the sense of urgency. And the Air Force is the same with decommissioning um, their, their bomber fleet, you know, getting rid of B-1s before the B-21 is available. Um, and then, you know, the idea that if this is our number one threat, you know, what type of weapons are we acquiring? You know, I asked the Air Force, uh, the chief of staff of the Air Force about long range anti-surface missiles, Air Force ability for mine laying, you know, if this is our number one threat and we look at, you know, any potential conflict with China would be naval in nature and Air Force, the Navy and the Air Force would pay the main roles in that, you know, what are you developing? What are you buying? What are you requesting in this budget um, that supports that? Um, and I don't feel like there's a, you know, coordinated joint focus on that. And it's a bigger thing as well. And this is probably a longer range project that I plan to examine is, you know, are there breakdowns in the Goldwater-Nichols Act between strategy and acquisition? And what is that feedback loop between what the combatant commanders need and what we're basically buying or what the services are coming to the Navy to say, this is what we want to buy this year. So I think that's a much bigger question, maybe for another podcast, um, but it is certainly something that's on my mind.
0: There does seem to be a sense that there especially when they want to want to divest themselves of legacy programs. Now, there's this horrible thing called legacy programs. Um, And we want to uh, divest of these to invest in the future. That sounds like a good idea, but the future is a long way off. Like to talk about the frigate, the frigate's not going to be available in any numbers that will make any difference at all until the mid 30s. Mm -hmm. It's a lovely idea. You should be working somewhere. You need to be working for the future. But it doesn't do much for the next decade in front of you. It sounds like you're trying to get them to emphasize weapons for today and readiness for today as well as tomorrow. You have to be able to do both. But it seems like they don't want to do today as much as tomorrow.
2: I would say that is accurate, the impression I've gotten from these hearings. And, you know, I think it's sort of a three-pronged approach I've said is I think we need to build more ships and build them as quickly as we can. Um, We need to both maintain and deploy our ships as efficiently as possible and stop decommissioning ships faster than we're building them. But in that piece of the deploy and maintain our ships as efficiently as possible, there's a lot in there. And that's not about coming to Congress to buy the next thing, to buy the next platform, the next aircraft, hypersonics. Um, And those are all things I think we need to invest in R&D and develop those things. But, you know, what are the investments that need to be made in the industrial base, in the shipyards, in the workforce? Because, you know, maintenance has been driving operations. And if our ships are stuck in availabilities for extended periods of time, they're causing other ships to double deploy on short uh, turnaround because other ships are not available in, in the yards. And we've seen that with multiple carrier strike groups over the last two years You know, are there efficiencies that can be built in there? I mean, the the deployment model, the Optimized Fleet Response Plan, OFRP, is based off of a five-to-one generation model. So it takes five ships to have one on station all the time. We used to be four to make one. So, like, what investments could we do to get back to four to make one and increase the effective size of the Navy by 20%? Um, And I don't feel like there's a lot of arguments being made about, like, what are these other investments? Investments in infrastructure, workforce, maintenance, you know, just all the whole different bucket of things that could effectively increase the size of the Navy with the platforms we already have.
0: So the Naval shipyards do most of the, of the refit work on the nuclear fleet, Correct. the submarines and the carriers, not all of it. And that's actually because of the capacity issue. They can't do all of it. But the carriers, uh, the Navy has the preponderance of responsibility for that. Uh, you have a lot of nuclear carrier experience. The carriers that go into Norfolk Naval shipyard are perennially late. They're always late. That doesn't always seem to be the case on the West Coast. Ships tend to go into Puget Sound. They tend to come out more or less on time. Certainly not the delays that we chronically see out of Norfolk. And that has led to several carriers having to double clutch, do back-to-back deployments, which only exacerbates the issue. Obviously, the, the Navy's talked a lot about Revamping the the shipyards, putting more investment in there. Why do you think that's such a problem with Norfolk and not so much a, a Puget Sound issue? How did that yeah. happen? And are they well, getting out of it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's. Prioritization issues. Um, so for example, the Bush, CVN 77 is in the first docking availability of their life cycle. So that first deep high, uh, is supposed to, and then when the Nimitz was designed, that was supposed to be 10 and a half month avail. So the first time the ship goes in the dock um, after they deployed a couple of times, Bush is in for 27 months. Okay. And that didn't happen necessarily because of the critical path work on that ship. There were some things that were unanticipated that they had to add to the work package out of the standard class maintenance plan, but they also had submarine refuelings. They had to do the MTS, the more training ship conversion for the submarine prototypes in order to train the submarine operators in Charleston. And those things were prioritized over the carrier maintenance. And so there's a limited amount of workforce and limited amount of capacity at Norfolk Naval Shipyard And there were choices made to prioritize that other work. And then it's also cascaded down on the nuclear submarines, Um, the Boise, the Helena that have literally sat at the pier for a very extended period of time, over a year in one case, um, waiting to go into maintenance. And so in order to try to expand that, the Navy has also tried to bring in the the new construction yards, electric boat and um, Newport News to add capacity and submarine repair. Yet that did get off to a rocky start. Um, You know, I was up at Newport News and I said, well, you built the submarine. How come you can't fix it? Um, But, you know, it does take standing up a different um, focused organization to do that submarine repair. So, I mean, the industrial-based investments that we need to make are both in our public shipyards. And we are working on a shipyard um, optimization plan, a SIOP plan, which the Navy did plan over 20 years, which is a very long time frame. I think that we could accelerate that some, but also investments in private Um, industrial capacity as well um, in order to help with this, both the nuclear and the conventional maintenance, because you're right, it is all linked together. And even the work that happens in our nuclear yards, our public yards is augmented by the non-nuclear yards across the waterfront here in Hampton Roads. So, um, you know, and and also if you look at the the infrastructure at our shipyards, Norfolk Naval Shipyard, for example, some of the dry docks we're using date to just post-World War I. Um, We've seen a lot of sea level rise, um, a lot of flooding there. Um, Every time there's a major storm that comes through on the East Coast during hurricane season, they basically have to float the ship again, disconnect the services, you know, kind of a whole delay in work due to environmental events, storms. And so I think all of these different things compounded have have led to, you know, some of the delays there. But um you know, it is a focus to invest more in those shipyards, both you know, through the defense bill but also in an infrastructure package that we're talking about. There is legislation that, Rob Whitman, Mike Gallagher, myself, Bobby Scott have all um, supported and a wide range of people on both sides of the aisle to, you know, when we're making major infrastructure investments for the country, our shipyard infrastructure is part of that. And so there's a $25 billion bill that both for public shipyards and private um, ship repair industry to try to make some of those investments um, because it's
0: really essential. As we wrap up, I've been around this for a while. And after 9 11, um, the Navy and the Air Force quite vocally took a a back step to funding for the army as we ramped up with first Afghanistan and then Iraq. And the land war was where the emphasis was. Chief of Naval Operations Vern Clark back then uh, routinely told people, you know, we need to put more money, more money in the army. I'm willing to accept cutbacks in the Navy for that. Uh, If the pacing threat is China, which we hear endlessly, I don't think anybody's anticipating a major land conflict with China. I certainly hope not. Um, but there's no particular talk about de-emphasizing the army <laughs> and emphasizing shifting those, those funds over to the Navy and the Air Force. Um, are you concerned about that? And, and actually, even not, not you, do you think Congress would support those shifts, parochial interests notwithstanding? but in general would 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 support those shifts if only the Pentagon and the Navy would ask?
2: What I'll tell you is that, um, well, first of all, um, General Milley made a comment along these lines about a year ago. Um, A lot of people have brought that up numerous times again. You know, his thought process is that, you know, this shift to um, the Navy and the Air Force um, in our current environment is important. And and also think about the fact that you know we have a standing army, um, both you know supporting um, NATO in Europe, um, our forces in Europe as well as on the Korean Peninsula. And you know when we went to deploy to Iraq and Afghanistan, like we didn't pull those forces out and send them there. I mean we maintained that presence and that deterrent. But what did we do? We pulled the navy out of pretty much everywhere else in the world um, to provide a you know support uh, to the ground forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. And you know for. That That reason, we've been lacking a deterrent, um, you know, on the scale that we should have in the Western Pacific, participating with our European allies, you know, over the last two decades. And, you know, I, I think this goes back to our very first question in this discussion is, you know, what is the Navy's strategy, I think the Navy is going to need to be able to come to Congress and explain like why we need the Navy that we need, um, and the Air Force included as well, um, to be able to, to justify the fact that the funding should shift and I also feel that the army is just really trying to, you know, find ways to stay relevant. Um, The idea that the army wants to establish long range fires, long range anti-surface missiles um, from land-based sites in the Pacific, you know, that the Navy has long range uh, capability. The Air Force is also working on that. And if you look at, you know, missile defense of Guam, for example, um, you know, there's just a lot of, I think, juggling for the army to try to maintain its relevancy. Um, in an environment where the army is not the main uh, component of a potential um, conflict with China. And if I can have a few more seconds, you know, when uh, General McConville came before Congress, the, the chief of staff of the army recently, you know, in his statement, I mean, it started out by saying is that, you know, we have a force that's prepared to fight and win. It's a much deeper question. Like I ask him, so General, what do you mean by win? Um, And, you know, this is dovetailed on a comment by General Milley just before that in a preceding hearing basically saying, you know, and this is kind of a I think a well-known precept in military history that, you know, that you you don't win a war without a land component. But what is a land component in a conflict with China? Um, You know, we're I think we're really in a situation where. Are we, are we saying like, we can't win, they can't win. Um, so what is the objective? What does win mean? And um, General McConville basically said, well, winning means not fighting. Um, so what does that mean? It means deterrence. And what leads to deterrence? It means to the right naval forces in the right places at the right time and a credible threat. Like Michelle Flournoy wrote, you know, basically the Chinese need to know that we can target and destroy every one of their naval assets within 72 hours. So it's a very simple um, objective, but like we need something like that that can be defined and articulated because this is you know, why we have a Navy, why we have an Air Force, and this is how we're going to provide a deterrent. And I feel like that is lacking in any of the planning documents, long-range shipbuilding plans, you know, the things that have been brought before Congress currently.
0: All right. Well said. Uh, Ms. Loria. thank you very much for taking the time today. You've been very informative and uh, good luck in the future.
2: Well, great. Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you, ma'am. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. It's now it's time for Squawk Box. Here's Chris Cervello on the need for straight
1: talk. This week, maritime leaders and influencers convened virtually for West 2021. Despite the great corporate and organizational support, these leaders again swung and missed when it came to delivering a serious and connected argument for why C-Power is necessary and how it fits into an increasingly competitive security environment. What we heard were softball questions followed by rambling and disconnected answers with little or no takeaways for the audience. In fact, many of the reporters we spoke to struggled to find anything new or compelling to write on. Look, I know there's good work going on in the E-ring, in fleet concentration areas, and in commands around the world. So why the heck are they so bad at telling their story? As we heard from Congresswoman Loria, there are smart and motivated members of Congress that wanna help. So for God's sake, help them help you. Give Congress, industry, and navalists a connected narrative they can latch onto and amplify. Individual program efforts have to be related and shared under an umbrella of larger strategic themes to a bigger picture that inspires confidence and support. Exactly one month from the taping of this podcast, the Navy League will host its annual Sea, Air, and Space Conference. The list of panels and expected guests is a who's who of maritime thought leadership. It should be a stimulating and intriguing event except it won't be if naval leaders peddle the same rhetoric we have heard over the last dozen or so months. So my appeal is simple. The first in-person naval symposium in more than 15 months is a great opportunity to reconnect and build momentum for the coming budget year. Please, please take the next four weeks to synchronize efforts and have something to say. Avoid the maritime fortune cookie wisdom and catchphrases like "war fighting first, taking a fix, or increasing lethality, and speak clearly and candidly about where we need to go in the next decade. Challenge the moderators and guests to learn something new, to think differently, and to leave the conference with a better understanding of where the maritime services fit into the greater competition with China and Russia. Thanks.
0: Well, well said, Chris. Pretty good stuff there, and I couldn't agree more. That does it for our podcast this week. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Congressman Luria, for being our guest. As always, thanks to Vago Marady and for his support.
1: This podcast is available on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Music, and SoundCloud. As always, if you have uh, comments, be sure to hit us uh, up on email or follow us at Cava Ships and send direct messages. You know, let us know how we can, uh, can do better.
0: All right. Thanks, folks. <laughs>